We read the word of God today, this afternoon, in Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward, and now you should know that a better translation here is actually quite a different translation, and afterward did honor or make glorious the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation. And now here's another change. The word not should be removed. Thou hast multiplied the nation and increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in the harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord sent a word unto, into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim, and the inhabitant of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him and join his enemies together, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth for all this. His anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. The ancient and honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err and they that are led of them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for every one is an hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all this 
His anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burneth as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns, and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest. And they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened. And the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. And he shall eat on the left hand and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. And they together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. I call your attention to verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great promise to David that we considered last time, God established the throne of the seed of David for many generations, even when his kingdom split in two, into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But by the time of the days of the prophet Isaiah, and particularly the days when he wrote the prophecy of our text, clouds of darkness and gloom had moved in to the land of Judah and shrouded the kingdom and the house of David. And that's why we read in the chapter that we read that the people walked in darkness Verse 2, the people dwell in the land of the shadow of death. The people in those days were walking in darkness, spiritual darkness. They were following their king. Their king was a man from the house of David, in the line of David, whose name was Ahaz. Ahaz was one of the worst and most wicked kings that Judah ever had. We read about Ahaz in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. We read about him that he walked in the most abominable sins that can be imagined. He served 
all the idols of the nations, Balaam, Molech, and the others. He even caused his own children to pass through the fire on the altar to Molech. He polluted the temple of God by erecting a heathen altar in it. And Ahaz refused to serve Jehovah, the God of Israel. Because of the wickedness and the darkness that had settled on the kingdom in those days of Isaiah, God caused the shadow of death to pass over the land. By raising up two fierce kings in the north, the Israelite king, Pekah, and the Syrian king, Rezan, whose name appears in the chapter that we read. Pekah and Rezan formed an alliance with each other, and they decided they would invade the southern kingdom of Judah, and they did so. And they brought death and destruction into the land. They even made a plan to besiege the city of Jerusalem and to topple the house of David and to set up their own king in Jerusalem in the place of Ahaz. These were dreadful days. These were dark and fearful times. Isaiah went to Ahaz at that time, and he exhorted him not to be afraid, but to put his trust in Jehovah, the one true God. And he gave to Isaiah, Isaiah gave to Ahaz a sign He said, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, because God was with them, and that was his message. But Ahaz rejected the sign. He refused to trust in the Lord, the God of Israel, and instead he put his trust in the king of Assyria. Assyria was the rising world empire in the east, and its king was Tiglath-Pileser. He was a mighty and powerful king. And Ahaz decided to take the silver and gold out of the temple of God and to try to hire the king of Assyria to help him against the two kings that were attacking him. Well, the king of Assyria came, and he subdued those two kings and even killed one of them. But the plan backfired. The king of Assyria did not help Ahaz in the end, but he distressed him, and he did not help him. And what Ahaz came to see and what the people of God came to see was that this king of Assyria was the greatest threat to Jerusalem and to the house of David and to the line of Christ that they had ever seen. So that darkness and the shadow of death crept closer and closer to Jerusalem. Those were the days. It was in those days that God gave to Isaiah the prophecy of our text, a glorious prophecy, a comforting prophecy, and that was exactly the purpose of it, to comfort his people, Isaiah, and those around Isaiah, the true remnant of believers in Jerusalem and Judah in those days, and also to comfort us today. The prophecy begins in verse 1 of chapter 9. And as I mentioned, the better translation of the text is 
that whereas in the past God afflicted the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and those two tribes were located in the northernmost part of Israel, in the land that would later be called Galilee. Whereas the Lord allowed the king of Assyria to invade Naphtali and Zebulun and carry them away captive in the past, in the future, he will honor and make glorious that very same land of Galilee by the Sea of Galilee. It is in that very same place where captives were carried to Assyria that the Prince of Peace will walk along the shores of that sea so that the people who walked in darkness will see a great light and those that dwell in the land of the shadow of death Upon them the light will shine. He will multiply the nation. He will increase their joy. He will break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulder. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Let's consider Isaiah's prophecy of a child born for us. Notice, first of all, that he is born to bear the government of David forever. Secondly, called by lofty names of divine majesty. Finally, this will be performed by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. In this prophecy that God gave to Isaiah in those dark days, Isaiah announces glad tidings of great joy when he says in the text, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now as I mentioned, Isaiah had already spoken to Ahaz and given to him a sign that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. But that was only a sign. Now Isaiah comes and announces the birth of the child. A child is born, a son is given unto us. And when the prophet announces the birth of this child, which is the very same child that was promised that would be born from a virgin, Emmanuel, Isaiah is not talking here about the birth of Hezekiah, as some people have interpreted the passage. Hezekiah was the son of that wicked king Ahaz, who was currently on the throne in those days. King Hezekiah was one of the most godly and faithful of all of the kings of Judah, in sharp contrast to his father. It is through Hezekiah, who would have a firm faith in God, that God would deliver his people from the threatening power of Assyria in a great moment and a miraculous deliverance. He would save Jerusalem from the Assyrian Empire. But Isaiah is not here speaking about the birth of Hezekiah, although Hezekiah may very well have been born around that time in the palace. But he is speaking here prophetically about the future birth of one greater than Hezekiah, of the true, the greatest son in the line of David. He's talking about the birth of of Emmanuel, the son of a virgin. Unto us 
a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And Isaiah announces it as if it has already taken place, even though it would not yet take place for many hundreds of years. He announces the glad tidings to the people of God in those days for their comfort. Unto us, people of God, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. As if it has already taken place, although he is seeing it in a vision. What glorious gospel tidings Isaiah brought. Unto us, he says. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And we have just seen that the people of God in those days were a people that walked in darkness. Unto us, a people who are walking in darkness, a people who are sinful, a people who are rebellious against our God, this child is born. And Isaiah knew himself to be among that people. In chapter 6, only a few chapters earlier, when he saw a vision of the Lord of hosts, he was led to say this, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah knew himself to be a sinner, to be one who walked in the darkness. And he walked in the midst of a people that was descending deeper and deeper into sinfulness of all kinds. And yet, he announces the glad tidings. And so, what about us? What about you? Like Isaiah, do you understand yourself to be a sinner? Do you know yourself to be one of those who walks in the darkness? One who deserves to perish in the land of the shadow of death because of your sin? Because of your rebellion against the Lord of hosts? Because of your disobedience to his commands? Because of your love of the things of the world and the treasures of the world? And I, as your preacher, like Isaiah, do I know myself that way? And am I able to say, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We are the people who sit in darkness. When we examine ourselves this week, that's the first part that we examine ourselves, whether we know ourselves to be sinners, people who walk in darkness, people who deserve to perish under that frightening, terrifying shadow of death, not the Assyrian threat, but the wrath of God. Then as contrite sinners who know who we are, let us listen to the good tidings of the preacher in the text. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Those beautiful words of Isaiah echo down through the halls of history. Those words that he spoke and that he wrote when he saw, as it were, in a vision looking over the shoulder of Joseph and Mary, a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. 
because there was no room for him in the inn. Unto us, he cries out, unto us, he exclaims, a child is born, a son is given, a gift of grace that we don't deserve, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the prophet goes on to say that the government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shined. A child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. God will place upon the shoulder of this child, this son, the government of the house of David. The government, with all of its rights and powers and responsibilities, will be his exclusive possession. It will not belong. It will not be given to anyone else. He will be the sovereign monarch. This will be no democracy. This will be no republic. This will be a sovereign monarchy in which this child reigns over us. The government will rest upon his shoulders, his mighty shoulders, and he will bear up that government. And this is the thing. This is good tidings of great joy. During those days, Ahaz had the government of Judah. Ahaz was reigning over the land, and he was a wicked, ungodly, and fickle king. But now, Isaiah prophesies, the government will rest upon the shoulders of this child. And notice this now, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. His government will increase. In the time of Ahaz, his government was decreasing rapidly and drastically as the two kings were attacking him from the north, as the Assyrian king was oppressing him from the east. The kingdom of Judah shrank smaller and smaller until they were enclosed, as it were, inside Jerusalem. But now the glorious prophecy, the light shines into the darkness. His government will increase And it will increase more and more until it becomes greater and greater and fills the earth. It will embrace all nations and peoples and kindreds and tongues. It will stretch from sea to sea and from shore to shore. And this kingdom and this government will not increase the way earthly kingdoms do through warfare, through swords and spears, but it will increase through peaceful means, through the preaching of the gospel and the work of his spirit. Because the prophet also proclaims that his peace will increase. As his kingdom expands and the reaches of his government are brought farther and farther into all nations, his peace will also increase. As the gospel is preached into the nations, it will bring peace between man and God, peace between the citizens of the kingdom. 
It will unite men of diverse backgrounds. The Jew, the Syrian, the Assyrian, the Egyptian, the Greek, the Roman, all of these diverse peoples opposing each other, fighting and battling against each other, will be brought to peace in the midst of his kingdom. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. In the days of Ahaz, the idea of peace was a foreign thought. They lived in fear of war, of invasion, of destruction. But now the prophet says, his peace will increase more and more and more without end unto all eternity. We are reminded of the song of the angels outside of Bethlehem. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And finally, the prophet mentions that he will sit upon the throne of his father David, and he will order his kingdom to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. What a glorious prophecy, and how comforting to the people of God in a time when the son of David, Ahaz, who sat on the throne, was as wicked as one could be, offering up his children in the flames of the altar, erecting heathen altars in the temple of Jehovah. The prophet proclaims that when this child is born, when this son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. It will increase. There will be peace And this son of David will be the true and the everlasting seed. We saw last time, last Sunday, the promise of God to David. That he would establish the throne of his son after him forever and ever. Now we see here in this prophecy of Isaiah that that will not result in an eternal succession of kings. But that succession of kings will end in one particular king, Emmanuel, the Prince of Peace, the true son of David. And when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom, he will establish it. He will order it. He will bring order into the kingdom. There was chaos. There was confusion. There was destruction. There was burning. But this Emmanuel will bring order into the chaos. He will bring judgment and justice into this kingdom of oppression and injustice and wickedness in which the poor and the widows and the strangers are mistreated where there is no justice and there is no judgment. Emmanuel will come and bring righteousness and he will sit upon his throne and reign from this time even forever. Unto us a child is born, Isaiah says. Unto us a son is given. In the vision he sees the babe of Bethlehem, born for us sinners. Upon us who walk in darkness, we have seen a great light. Matthew indicates the fulfillment of this prophecy In Matthew chapter 4, he writes in verse 12, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, 
which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. When Jesus walked the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Matthew says, this is in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. The people who sat in darkness would see a great light. A child has been born. A son has been given. And he is in Galilee. In Galilee, his ministry and his kingdom begin. Do you believe the prophecy? Do you believe it was fulfilled? Do you believe the word of God in our text? Do you believe that a child has indeed been born, this child? A son has been given, this son, this son in the line of David, Emmanuel, Christ. As we examine ourselves in this coming week, that's part of our self-examination. We not only see that we are sinners who sit in darkness and deserve to perish under the shadow of death, but do you believe this faithful promise of God that according to his prophecy he has raised up a child, a son has been given for you, for me. A child who will bring us salvation. The prophet was also given to know the marvelous, glorious name of this child. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What a lofty name. A name of divine majesty. And that list of names was not just a court prophet, which Isaiah was. He had access to the courts of the king. He had access to Ahaz to speak to him. This is not to be explained, as some have explained, as merely flattering the newborn child of the king, giving to him names of exaggerated majesty and loftiness. But what we are to see in the text is that God revealed to his servant Isaiah these names about the child, the messianic child who was to be born. We must also understand that it's not as if when this child is born, his mother will give him these names, or that as he lives his life, people will actually address him with these names. 
That's not the idea either. We know that he was addressed by the name Jesus. But the idea is that these names reveal who he is and reveal what he does and why he came. That's the idea of names in Scripture. Names often contain great and profound meaning. And they reveal to us something about the person who has that name. These names are a revelation of the Messiah, of who he is. Notice, first of all, that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Do you call him by that name? Do you say about Jesus, he is my Wonderful Counselor? Now it's possible that those are two different names. But it seems very likely that they are actually one name and that there are four distinct names in the text. And what a beautiful and glorious name to begin this series of names. He is our wonderful counselor. The first name that he is given is wonderful. He is a wonder. He is a miracle, this child. Indeed, he is the wonder of all wonders. He is the miracle of all miracles. He is the greatest wonder that has ever appeared in the midst of the world. Throughout all the long ages of history, there is no greater wonder, no greater miracle than this child who was to be born. When you look at this child, you see something wonderful. You see someone who is marvelous, someone who is glorious, someone who fills your your mind and your heart with joy and astonishment. Wonderful counselor. The kings in the house of David needed counselors. They couldn't do it all on their own. David surrounded himself with counselors. Solomon surrounded himself with counselors. Ahaz had counselors, advisors. And those counselors helped the king. They told him what he should do and what he shouldn't do. But this king, Emmanuel, needs no counselor because he is the wonderful counselor. All wisdom and all understanding and all knowledge are in him. He doesn't need anyone to counsel him or to advise him or to show him what to do. He knows what to do. He knows what to say. He is our wonderful counselor. Is he your wonderful counselor? Do you need a counselor? Do you need someone to tell you what to do, to show you the way that you should go, to help you through distress, to help you through trials and troubles? Do you find yourself ensnared in certain sins and unable to break free from them? And do you need a counselor to guide you, a redeeming counselor to show you and to help you to break free from the chains of darkness and bondage? Do you need a counselor to comfort you in your distress when you have troubles and trials and sorrows? Do you need a counselor to come by your side and to tell you the truth, to show you the glad tidings, to comfort you with the good news of great joy? This child was born to be your counselor He is your wonderful 
counselor. He's a wonder of a counselor. There's no greater counselor than him. And he gives counsel to you through the scriptures. He gives counsel to you through the preaching of the scriptures and the teaching of the word of God. He gives counsel to you through his officers, elders, ministers, and deacons. He gives counsel to you through your fellow believers. He calls out to you, my child, in all of your sin, in all of your distress and trouble and darkness, come unto me. Come unto me. I will give you rest. In the second place, his name is the mighty God. We could translate that the heroic God. The God who is our hero. Our mighty God. Again, Isaiah was not merely flattering the newborn child of the king by giving him this lofty title, but he was speaking the truth about this child who would be born. His name is the mighty God. God was showing to Isaiah something very rare in the Old Testament. He was showing to him that the Messiah who is to come is no mere man, but he will be the mighty God himself. The mighty God will come down from heaven and be born. He will become a child. He will be born of a virgin. And he will be none other than the mighty, powerful, glorious God himself. The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who has all power and all dominion and all sovereignty, who rules over all things. He will be that child in the flesh. Because only the mighty God can do all the things that this child is said to do. Only the mighty God will be able to bear on his shoulders the government of the kingdom of God and to cause that kingdom to increase more and more and cause there to be peace. Only the mighty God could vanquish mighty foes like the Assyrian Empire and Satan himself. Only God could take upon himself the burden of our sins and bring justice into the kingdom by dying for our sins in our place so that the kingdom is established on a foundation of righteousness. This child is the mighty God. When you look into the face of the baby of Bethlehem, you look into the face of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus, Emmanuel, is the mighty God in human nature? Thirdly, this child shall be called the everlasting father or the father of eternity. This does not mean that the first person of the Trinity is the one who will be this child. We who know the Trinity so well the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons and one God, might be tempted to interpret the text or to see the text in a confusing way. I thought that the Son of God was the one who would become this child. And here he is called the everlasting Father. But we must not be confused. The prophet is not saying that the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is the one who will become a child and be born. 
The Son of God is the one who would become this child through the Virgin. And yet, his name will be called the Everlasting Father. What the prophet means is not that he is the same as the first person of the Trinity in his person, but he is the same in his essence and in his being. This child who would be born is God, who is one with the Father. Jesus made that clear in John 10 when he said, I and the Father are one. And what the prophet is declaring here by giving him the name Everlasting Father is that the Christ who is to come will not only have the divine attributes of might and power, but he will have the divine attributes of compassion and mercy like a father. The Messiah who is coming will be so much different than wicked Ahaz, who only cared about himself. This Messiah will love his people. He will be compassionate toward them. He will be merciful toward them. He will seek their good. He will love them with an everlasting love. And he will lay down his life for them to deliver them from all their enemies, to deliver them from their sins, to give them everlasting life. He's the everlasting Father. He is a Savior who will love us for all eternity. And finally, in the fourth place, his name shall be called the Prince of Peace. Not as though this future Messiah is going to bring an earthly peace on earth for a thousand years. Jesus made clear that he didn't come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. He says that in Matthew 10. I didn't come to bring an earthly peace. I didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. The Prince of Peace would come to bring a spiritual, heavenly an everlasting peace that will be fully realized in the world to come. The Prince of Peace will divide men by the sword of the gospel into believers and unbelievers. But among believers, among the citizens and subjects of his kingdom, he will bring peace. He comes to restore peace. He comes to bring peace between God's chosen people And they're God. Those who walked in the darkness and sat in the shadow of death, he came to reconcile us to God and to make peace between us and God by the shedding of his own precious blood. This Emmanuel, this Messiah, this child came to die so that through his death, through his sacrifice, he might bring peace between you and and God, between me and God, and between us amongst ourselves. In Romans 5, verse 1, the apostle says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the peace that this prince would come to bring. And in Philippians 4, he speaks of the peace that passes understanding, that we may have in the way of prayer Because the Prince of Peace has come to give us peace in our lives. 
with all circumstances, all of our troubles, all of our trials, we can have peace because we have a prince who died for us. In the midst of this world of turmoil and chaos and confusion and sin and darkness, he gives us a peace to keep our hearts and minds through it all. And then at last, when he comes again, he will establish his kingdom in a new world where there will be perfect peace forever. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And this will be his name. What a comfort to the people of God in Isaiah's day. Imagine the comfort that this great Savior will come. And he will shine his light into our darkness as the Assyrian Empire crept closer and closer to Jerusalem. What a comfort to us as we sit in a world of continuing and deepening darkness as the anti-Christian empire rises up around us and creeps closer and closer. Emmanuel, a child, has been given for us. Prince of Peace. In case this sounded just too good to be true, or in case this sounded like something that couldn't possibly come to pass, Isaiah assures the people of God the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. What a comforting assurance that is at the end of our text. He doesn't just say that the Lord of hosts will perform it. That would be a wonderful assurance all by itself. The Lord of hosts is Jehovah, the God who rules over all of the hosts of heaven, all of the hosts of the earth, all of the angels, all of the demons. The Lord of hosts reigns over those two fierce kings of the north who were troubling the Jews He reigns over that mighty king of Assyria. He is like nothing to the Lord of hosts. He is like a speck of dust in the bucket to the Lord of hosts. The Lord can do anything. He can do great things. And all of the might and the power of the world around us today is as nothing to him. But Isaiah doesn't just say that the Lord of hosts will perform it. But in beautiful I might even say exciting language. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is his passion. It's his enthusiasm. It's his energy. The Lord will not just fulfill this, as it were, without any passion, in a lackluster manner, in a cold and indifferent way, mechanically. But the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. With zeal, with ardor, with with joy, the Lord will perform it. He will cause it to come to pass because it is exceedingly important to him. The birth of this child. All of God's plans and purposes revolve around it. The very reason he created the universe revolves around the birth of that child. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. The zeal, the passion, the enthusiasm of God will make sure that this child is born for our salvation. And he has performed it. And that's what we celebrate this time of year. We think of the zeal of the Lord of hosts as we think of those angels filling the sky outside of Bethlehem whom the Lord sent to sing that beautiful herald angel song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The zeal of the Lord of hosts brought that child into the world. And therefore we have the comfort and the hope that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will bring it all to final and perfect fulfillment in the world to come. So we examine ourselves this week. Do we consider ourselves to be those who sit in darkness by nature? Do we know ourselves to be sinners? Do we know ourselves to be those who deserve that the shadow of everlasting death should pass over us? But do we also believe that God has faithfully kept his promises, fulfilled the prophecies, given us a child to save us from our sins? And do we believe that he's coming again to bring perfection to his kingdom for all eternity? And if so, Are we resolved to live a new and godly life, having this hope in us, having this joy that the zeal of the Lord of hosts has brought salvation? Are we resolved to live godly lives, bowing the knee to that child, bringing our gifts to him, serving him, following him, devoting our lives to him until he comes again. Then let us come next Lord's Day to the royal table of Emmanuel. Amen. Our Father, we thank thee for the beautiful prophecies of old that fill our hearts with joy and hope. We thank thee for the revelation of this child. And we thank thee for the fulfillment that thou hast brought this child to birth and even to death, that we might have everlasting salvation. Be with us this week as we examine ourselves, whether this gospel finds a place in our hearts, whether this child is our personal Savior, whom we trust and whom we love, And may we then come, having examined ourselves by faith, may we come and sit down together at the royal table to eat and to drink in remembrance of him.